Hey guys, I'm Chris. And I'm Mike. And welcome back to No Limits, the Thriller Podcast. What's your updates this week, Mike? Well, you wished me a happy birthday just about two weeks ago. So now it's my turn. Happy birthday to the doctor, Dr. Furman. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's funny. We both have like birthdays like within a week of each other. Right. And you know what else is coming up this week? April 29th is a special day for No Limits. The two-year anniversary of our first ever episode on the Mitch Rap Podcast. Wow, we've been doing this for two years. Two years, my friend. Wow, that's crazy. Would 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 you have told me at the beginning of the pandemic that we would have a a podcast, three feeds, let alone into season two with Scott Harvath, and then doing this feed, talking to authors, talking to a bunch of stuff that I would have never guessed that. April's a special month. I feel like it's no limits month. We celebrate. It is. It is. It, your first year birthday, then my birthday, then the birthday at the pod. So there, there we go. All right, I'm I'm proposing a tradition, just like we did the other day. We have to have a golf round with the boys, all four of us, every April. That's got to be a tradition. Yeah, we've been doing it now. I guess this is the second year we've done it. Like right, close close to both mine and your your birthday, and as well as Tom, one of our other buddies, exactly, um, who has a exactly. birthday in April. So yeah, no, we should definitely keep that tradition going. Yeah, good golf round. Happy birthdays, and the podcast is rolling along. So, Chris, what are we covering today? We've got a good guest coming on the show. Yeah, so we were just talking about this before we started. Uh, we have a repeat guest, and he was the very first author in our author series that we covered on season one of No Limits, the Mitch Rap podcast. Uh, he wasn't the first author. We interviewed Kyle first, but then released one week after our interview with Kyle, we released our interview with Ward Larson. And now he's back. He's got another book. And yeah, Mike, Mike, you had the opportunity to to talk to him as well as Andrews and Wilson when I was on paternity leave. Um, so yeah, this is a great interview for you guys. Yeah, you were on baby duty. So I was just reading and interviewing and, and chugging along doing what I do over here. And yeah, I remember actually, we were doing the No Limits podcast. And so I was just getting into, you know, rekindling my love of thrillers, everything Mitch Rapp. We were getting established on social media, and I never heard of an ARC, an advanced reader's yeah, copy. Yeah, you hadn't, you hadn't, yeah. yeah. No idea that all over social media, they were giving away, doing little contests for advanced reader copies before a book came out. And one random thing I tweeted or responded to was by this guy, Ward Larson. Chris, to this day, Assassin Strike which came out in 2020, is one of my favorite thrillers. I, I think it was a candidate for Book of the Year that year. It was really good. It was good. very good. I mean, Blacktop Wasteland 2 came out that year, so that, that, was, that took the top spot for me. But Assassin's Strike was awesome. Got that from Ward, had him on the show, and I've read every one of his books since. And I went back and, and read a couple of the early ones in the Assassin series. And just a few weeks ago, the seventh title in the Assassin series came out, Assassin's Edge. And in 2021, a novella, an origin story, Assassin's Dawn, came out. So good chance for anybody who hasn't gotten into Ward's work really to pick up Assassin's Dawn. You know, it's it's an origin story, so you can get it from the very beginning. And it's a novella, so it's a quick read, and you will quickly realize you could be down with David Slayton, the main character. So all the Assassin's Definitely. books work. You could pick them up in any order don't necessarily need to go in order and they're they're techno thrillers where ward gets the technology down and he was a pilot so you can always count on still is a pilot you'll hear in the interview you can always count on his awesome plane scenes he's just got a lot of cool stuff going on really cutting edge stuff yeah i haven't had a chance to read the the new one but i remember um all the drone usage yes. in uh, in the last one was very good right so. yeah he pushes the boundaries of technology and and flight and this one we're going to talk about Assassin's Edge. He does the opposite, goes underwater for a little bit with some okay. scuba diving and submarine action. All right, yeah. So we hope you enjoy this interview with Ward Larson. You can check him out. If I don't know if you plug it in the in the pod, but uh, you can find him at wardlarson.com. There's, you know, all he's done a bunch of books, and uh, yeah, you look at the cover and the synopsis of on his website. So hope you enjoy this interview. 
Today, we welcome a very special guest for the second time on our author series on the No Limits Thriller podcast. Ward Larson was our first interview almost two years ago in August 2020 on episode number 20. Welcome back, Ward Larson. Thanks. I appreciate it. Great to be here. Yeah, I can't believe it's been two books for you, one a novella, and the next full episode in the Assassin series. So you've been busy these past two years. Yeah, I have. Uh, I still have a day job. I fly for an airline, but uh, you know, I took some time off. I had a program during COVID when I, when you could take time off from flying, and I did, and just sat home and wrote for eleven months because I couldn't go out and do anything else. So actually, last year I did two books, and you know, with the the way it takes you know a while to get to to shelf, it's going to be next year before those next two come out. But uh, yeah, it's uh, I'm staying ahead of things, staying very busy. And you're back to flying now, is that right? I am. Yes. Yeah. Any good destinations, places you've been or looking to go? Been to Aruba a couple of times lately for the first time because we kind of stopped doing that during the uh, pandemic. But uh, so that was kind of neat. It's a neat place down there. I like it. Okay. And remind me, do you fly commercially? Are you private? Yeah, I fly for Southwest. Okay, great. Let's jump into it. Like we said, you've been busy. I want to back up here and talk about Assassin's Dawn a novella that you published in 2021 and holy cow, this was explosive. Where did you get the idea and inspiration to go back in time and flesh out a little bit of David Slayton's earlier career and backstory? Well, I had kind of a gap in between books, so I wanted to do something to kind of keep the train rolling. And uh, so I figured it might be a little different. I knew I was going to do a novella. And uh, so it was about one third the length of a full novel. And because it was different like that, I just got the idea of going back and doing a prequel to kind of flesh out a little bit of where he got his start, you know, with Mossad. And uh, so that's that was basically the genesis of it and uh, went from there. Yeah, I know a few authors, they've taken this approach, but not just the origin story. You know, we have the American assassin with Mitch Rapp. Yes. But also the novella approach of filling in some gaps. That approach does a lot for the universe. So it, it kind of fleshed out some characters in David's history and it went into his motivations of why he became the badass assassin that he is. Is that something you think the thriller versus moving more to and we'll see more authors do? Uh, or is this just something you wanted to do so you did it? Or did you see it as part of a trend? Uh, I don't know if it's a trend. I think doing novellas intermittently is a trend. And yeah, you can fill in gaps. You can do little side stories. I've also seen where there will be spinoffs of other characters in the story that kind of get spinoffs for novellas and other books. But uh, yeah, it was just something I wanted to do. And I felt like, you know, the, the book is, I'm on number, I'm writing number 10 right now. And Assassin's Edge, which is coming out next week, is number nine in the series. And uh, I just felt like it had been a long time since that beginning. And I wanted to kind of, you know, go back to that a little bit and kind of remind people where he came from and where, you know, what his, uh, what his genesis was. So I, I think just because the series has been going on for a while, you know, the first one was published 14 years ago. And uh, I just wanted to go back to that and uh, kind of remind everyone where he'd come from. Perfect Assassin. That was the first one, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, oh, that was 14 years. Okay, I just Yeah, it, up. it was. I want to say shortly before we last interviewed you, but I can't believe it, it's aged. Because I remember that being really good. That was, I think Slayton was on a boat. Is that right? Yes, or? that's, yes, yes, he started out on a boat. Yeah, that's where he first song. That's yeah. right. <laughs> so I noticed with the novella, and by the way, for our audience, we're not going to spoil the specifics just yet. So feel free to keep listening if you haven't read Assassin's Dawn or Assassin's Edge. But Ward was kind enough to stay with us. And towards the end of this interview, we're going to give you a spoiler warning. And so once you pick up these books, once you devour them, come on back in the last 20 or so minutes of our conversation. We'll dig into the more specifics and the spoilers with the characters and the plots of what happens because some pretty big stuff happens here. But before we get to Assassin's Edge, one more thing on on Dawn. I noticed 
your writing had to be a little different in the novella format where I think you do an amazing job in the rest of the series getting into tech specs. When it's planes, mm-hmm. you could tell it is just oh, yeah. bread and butter. <laughs> That's my deal. Right. We, we've dealt with drones in Assassin's Strike. We're dealing with subs in Assassin's Edge. I feel like in Assassin's Dawn, you had to limit the tech specs and the details of the weaponry and the transportation. Was that a, a different part of your craft? for a novel. Well, I, I think more so it went back to his beginnings because in the beginning he didn't have all those all those assets. He was working for Mossad and he was more of a an operator, just an operative who more almost more of a spy than he was a you know special operator with all the all the tools and all the all the gadgets. So I think that just fit the story. That's why there weren't so many in that one. It was more just you know surveillance and the typical more intelligence type stuff than it was a military end of it. Right. That's definitely a change we see in, in the character and your writing was because I noticed it, that he was still young. He was still raw and not fully experienced where he can ID every weapon, every sound of a plane or. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, Assassin's Edge, this is the new release. When everyone listens to this, it will already be available. So we absolutely recommend you pick up your copy, not only of Assassin's Dawn, the prequel, but also Assassin's Edge. You said it's number nine in the series? Yes, yes. Okay. And I want to start with a quote that you had received from none other than Kyle Mills. (laughs) I thought you might pick up on that. (laughs) (laughs) And right on the cover, Kyle writes about your book, quote, a smart, edgy techno thriller that provides a glimpse into tomorrow's battles and the weapons they will be fought with. All right, this is coming from Kyle Milstradamus. So how did you feel getting that? <laughs> that was awesome. You know, I, I approached Kyle about it and he and, and the people at Emily Bester were very, very gracious about it. And uh, I gave him a, an early copy of the manuscript. It's probably changed a little bit since he saw it, but the bones were certainly there. And uh, yeah, he read it and liked it. Gave me a great, uh, a great uh, review on it. So uh, very much appreciated to Kyle. Because I know he's a busy guy. I know he's got a very busy schedule. And he goes between, I think, Spain and is it Montana or Wyoming. I know he's up in the upper Midwest somewhere. Right. But, uh, yeah. And then wood carving and rock climbing. <laughs> man of many times. <laughs> yes, exactly. Predicting the future on the side, you know. Yeah. Yeah, so he, he had a blog post where in his newsletter, he was basically sharing the secrets of the trade, not about writing, but about how he predicts the future. And and he noted that if you're really plugged in and you're really thinking for yourself, you know, learn from others, read everything you can from a variety of sources across the aisle, but then really make up your own mind and think about it. You can geopolitically speaking, get a handle uh, on, on the world and where it's headed. I feel like that's a skill our friends Anton Block and David Slayton can do. So how do you take your knowledge of current events and political maneuvering? I mean, there's some stuff with Russia in this book. How do you how do you put that into your characters so that you too are predicting the future as as Kyle gives you credit for? Yeah, well as right you know, as writers that's kind of our job. You know, Kyle does it. I know Brad Thor does it. We, we all do and we're trying to look ahead. Um, I remember back in 19, I think it was 94, Tom Clancy wrote a book called Dead of Honor, I believe it was. And that was the one where he had a terrorist crashing in 747 into the joint session of Congress. And that was kind of like a wow kind of plot. You know, he came up with that. And this was seven years before 9-11. So, you know, he kind of predicted that. And, you know, I think maybe we should have paid a little more attention to that to me that's as a writer you know that's that's our job is to come up with these plots and i don't think that we're thinking of anything the bad guys can't think of so if i view it as almost a public service to kind of you know predict where where things are going and where the threat is and it's difficult to you know in these kinds of books you're basically trying to put the world at risk you know you can use nuclear chemical biological world war three but there's only so many ways you could do that uh, to create that big overhanging risk, and everybody's done it, and you know there's been it's been on a lot of different ways. So it's hard to think of a new angle on it, a new spin on it. So uh, you know that's one of the harder parts of of my job. But I read a lot. Of, you know this this book, Assassin's Edge, uh, it gets a little into the technical stuff. 
but I, I, you know, I did that intentionally. And um, there's a lot of uh, new technologies out there that are really changing warfare. We're seeing it in Ukraine right now, where we have, you know, a tank army coming across the border in Ukraine, and it's just getting wiped out by drones and by some really nice missiles that are anti-tank missiles. And it's kind of changed the whole, you know, gauge of warfare that, you know, tank armies are not going to do that well anymore. So there's really a lot of changes out there. And, you know, maybe maybe the Russians didn't see that coming, but uh, it works. So, yeah, you got to look forward to see what technologies are developing. And, uh, you know, I read a lot of periodicals. I read, uh, you know, Aviation Week, Space Technology, which, you know, that's where I got a lot of the stuff that's in this book. And uh, so, yeah, you, you got to stay ahead of it. Right. And soon enough in our spoiler section, I do want to get into those specific technical nuances <laughs> and some weapons yeah. that you introduced that, whoa, really got me thinking, maybe keeping me up at night. So I do want to talk a little bit about that in a few moments. Another thing that's fun, fun for me as a writer is I, there was a, an assassin's silence three or four books ago. I came up with a, um, a notional thing that David Slayton carried around. And what it was was basically, I think you've probably seen it before on iPads. They have an app you can put up where you can fold it up to the sky and you can see constellations and satellites and it tells right. you where everything is. Yes, yes. Well, I just said, wouldn't it be a cool idea if the intelligence agency had an app you could put on a phone like that, fold it up to the sky and see what assets are up there as far as drones, satellites that he could access to look over the next hill. I mean, wouldn't that be a great thing for a guy on the ground to have, you know, a special operator, because he's probably going to have need, need access to that. Yeah. But uh, so I just kind of made it up. You know, I don't know if that exists or not, but it's fun as a writer to kind of dream up things like that. I feel like the traditional motif there is the operator has to report to the HQ or let's say to Langley, and then Langley has to have their people maneuver the drones. And then they have to see if any of the weather satellite people or whoever, all this coordination. Exactly. Imagine if the operative can manipulate that right there. On imagine the if you cut out all the middlemen and just right. had it where you can just tap on a screen and get the information. I mean, obviously you can only do it for a very high end mission where you, right. you need that. You have the authority to do that, but wouldn't it be a great thing to have? Damn. I mean, <laughs> Has anybody contacted you for a different job offer? Like, <laughs> and you know what? I haven't had a security clearance proper for over 20 years now. So, and I don't have any you know, sources that I get anything classified from. So I make this stuff up. I don't even send it to DOD to be vetted because I don't have any classified stuff in there. If I do, I'm just guessing it. You know, it's just accidental. So it's pure fiction. Yeah. Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah. You mentioned Ukraine. So while we're talking about this fine line between accidentally getting it right, uh, being a little too close to home, how do you think, maybe you could speak for yourself, but also in general, how do you think thriller authors will handle the Ukraine situation moving forward? It, it's It's really upending a lot of my preconceived notions about what war in the 21st century is going to look like down the road. I'm like, I thought we were done with tanks literally rolling across land borders that have been established right. and are internationally enforced and recognized. But that whole schema is broken. It's going to affect China, Taiwan situation, uh, you know, Pakistan, India. There's just so many of these scenarios that I feel like this could be a spark for. How are thriller authors going to incorporate that or deal with that? moving forward? Well, first of all, you have to understand the schedule. If I start writing a book today, it takes me eight, 10 months to write that book. And then it takes another 10 months to get the shelf. So you kind of have to be careful because I have no idea how this Ukraine thing is going to end. I don't know where the border is going to be. I don't know if Putin's going to still be around. So you have to not commit too hard to it because you don't know what the end game is. You don't want to get halfway through a book, have the world situation change and your, your plot is now invalid. So I think what you're going to see for the next uh, you know, six, 12 months from now, you're going to see people mentioning that war, but not really getting too deep into it because they don't know, you know how it's going to turn out. But it certainly gets the wheels turning. Um, I remember back um, to Red War, um, Kyle's book, and how that one was, you know, it was the one where Krupen yep. got a terminal disease or so he thought, and, and he wanted to create a diversion. And, you know, to, to, to stay in power, basically, and he's looking for a way to hold on power. 
and the diversion was to you know invade NATO. And you know, Kyle, I, I was just reading this book again back in January. I kind of went back and wanted to read that one again. And it was interesting that Kyle had him uh, think, you know, fainting that he was going to invade Ukraine, and instead he went for the Baltic states. Exactly. And I, and you know, I just thought about because he wrote that. I mean, the book came out four years ago almost, right. and he yeah. probably wrote it at least a year before that. And a lot of that stuff still valid. So it really, you know, kudos to Kyle for you know staying on on that ball. Yeah, you got to just keep up with current events, see what's going on in the world. And, you know, thriller writers, that's what we do. But that one really struck home. I remember that. Oh, it's so true. Yeah, he actually, Krupin or Kruputin, actually rolled tanks into Latvia and mm -hmm. was, was testing NATO's resolve. What will NATO, yeah. particularly the U.S., do? Is Article 5 going to hold up or will they cower? And, um, well, thankfully, Mitch and Scott were on the ground and organized the <laughs> Latvian resistance. Can you imagine... A Mitch, a Scott, or even a David Slayton, you know, in the trenches with President Zelensky. I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Another plot that just kind of came flew into my mind and that I liked that actually was a little different and I really enjoyed it was uh, Brad Thor's book. I don't remember the title, but it was the one where uh, he was on a transport. He had been captured and it crashed in snowy Russia. Backlash. Yeah. And yeah. And that book was really cool to me because. It was basically Siri training, so, you know, survival, escape, resistance, and evasion. That's what that book was. And that was a really cool angle, you know, having been through Siri myself. And uh, I really thought that was, that was neat, the way he, he went about that book. And that's why we're pumped to have launched season two of the podcast, Brad Thor and the Scott Harvest series. Chris and I have both said backlash that you're referring to is one of our favorites, Lions of Lucerne, the OG, the original Scott Harveth book yeah. we just covered. And man, he came out swinging. Still possibly one of my all-time <laughs> favorite thrillers. Yeah, that we're excited to do it for that exact reason. It has real, and I feel like Brad Thor, since we're talking geopolitical, I think he's the master of a thriller writer who gets, anticipates, and can war game you know, these different countries. And Rising Tiger is now going to be uh, involved China. And Black Ice just involved basically the Arctic and the Russian scramble to control Arctic navigation. These are all real plot lines. Your book, Assassin's Edge, which I do want to get to, also goes up into the Arctic with Wrangell Island. Yes. Well, one of the things I wanted to really impress in, in Edge is that right now, you know, we have these new technologies coming around. And... Um, What's getting really murky, war is getting murky, you know, it's oftentimes, I mean, when Putin first went into Ukraine, he didn't do it formally, he put in his little green men, he had these sanitized, basically soldiers coming in, but, you know, it's more of a, in the shadows now, and there's no reason you can't do that with higher tech weapons, and so attribution becomes a problem, you know, you're getting attacked by some very high tech weapons, and you don't know where they're coming from. And, you know, you don't want to go to war with somebody unless you're ab absolutely sure. And that's that, to me, in the future could be a problem. And certainly with cyber, that's a problem. I mean, you can do some real damage with cyber. Attributing it is really difficult sometimes. Yeah. And that's a theme of Assassin's Edge is these false flag operations. And take it for what it's worth with the U.S. and Biden administration response to Ukraine. But I remember just days, I think, prior to the invasion, the U.S. government put out false flag warnings that the Russians were filming propaganda, that they were setting up, you know, fake Ukrainian military installations to look like they're firing across the Russian border. And right. I mean, that's a hard thing unless you have a really strong intelligence network to know what's going on and people with social media can be very convinced of anything these days. So you kind of incorporate that. We're going to talk in a moment in the spoiler section with Assassin's Edge of essentially being a false flag operation. Right. But one more connection to Ukraine here. So many thrillers now that we're, it's crazy to say, but almost a decade removed from the Syrian conflict. So many characters are battle hardened or they were involved in the Syrian conflict, and that's where they got their, their expertise and their experience from, a lot of the villains and the bad guys. I feel like we could see thriller writers down the road, five, 10 years out, maybe saying a lot of their guys got training or battle-hardened 
on the streets of Ukraine. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, the whole middle, I mean, we're out of Afghanistan now too. Right. The Middle East, it's it's not really settling down, but to the West it is. You know, we're not there anymore. Uh, boots on the ground. Uh, I'm sure there are a few people here and there, but that's, so that's probably going to drive thrillers to go elsewhere. Of course, China is the big one these days. They're probably the real geopolitical threat is China. Russia Russia is becoming Venezuela with nuclear weapons. They're just a little, <laughs> you know, they're a one-legged economy of, you know, oil is all they have. <laughs> they do have a lot of nuclear weapons, though. a lot of them. I, I don't know if they're keeping them up very well, but, you know, and for a company that has, you know, some, a lot of nuclear know-how, the fact that they were bombing, you know, Chernobyl with artillery shells seems kind of strange to me. It's funny that night they, they were attacking the reactors, you know, the, the facility at Chernobyl, which Chernobyl isn't active anymore, but it's got a lot of waste they have to manage. So they have people there managing the remains of it so that it doesn't get out of control, you know. And, you know, they're, they're basically peppering it with artillery. And I looked at that, looked at it, there was a fire, there was a large fire at one right. point. And that night I just happened to be out flying and I looked at my weather, I looked at my weather on my, my, you know, my iPad and looked, uh, spun it over to Ukraine and looked at the upper level winds. The upper level winds are blowing straight to Moscow. <laughs> so, how, so how smart was that? Honestly, come on. <laughs> I mean, if you, if you have nuclear know-how to do something so silly, <laughs> that winds generally bow to from the west to the east. So anything yeah. they stir up in Chernobyl is going to go straight into Russia. Honestly, left hand, right hand, they, they can't coordinate. <laughs> I can't even. They're asking their head. Um. Great stuff. Great stuff. And I, I really want to dig into a couple of these spoilers. So last thing before we we move into the actual spoilers of these two books, the cover, your covers. And on the podcast, we like a good cover. We, we have a section where we call it judge a cover by the book. We like to judge <laughs> the covers if they actually relate to the storylines. And let me tell you, the cover of Assassin's Edge, I've always loved your covers, but this one, this one might be the winner. I, I got to tell you, there was a, oh, a near disaster on that, though. You know, I right? told him, you know, well, there's a submarine in the Arctic. I haven't had, you know, that kind of thing on the cover of books. Okay, good. So, I, I, you know, they send that to the cover designer. And he comes back with pretty much what, um, you know, we got, except the submarine looked like something out of Run Silent, Run Deep. It was like a World War II thing <laughs> cruising along. It was a U-boat or something. And I was like... Hang on, this is this is a little more modern submarine, and I That's gave them funny. the class, and then, and they fixed it. But it was like, oh, let's not do that. Oh, that's funny. That's funny. Yeah, these these subs are pretty modern. Like I said before, you feel like your bread and butter is the planes, but you tackled the subs here, not as detailed, but like a Tom Clancy, you know, Red October. I, I was yeah, you know, I had some help on that. Um, Brian Andrews of Andrews and Wilson, he was very helpful because he's a former sub guy and he gave me a lot of uh, help on the sub stuff to make sure it all uh, made sense. So, you know, you got to gotta research it. Well, the cover came out fantastic. So your team took that feedback, absolutely rocked it. And then the animated cover, I have never seen that before. <laughs> I hadn't either. I thought it was pretty cool. I'm not sure how they did that. How did that come about? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. They just said, "Hey, look what we got for you!" And you know, there was like smoke in the background coming up. It was, it was cool. It's, it's online. I'll, it's up on my website if anybody wants to see it. But yeah, there's an animated version of the cover, and yeah, it's just about five seconds long. But it was, it was a cool little gadget. Well, let me tell you, Mitch Rap Pod, we absolutely love talking covers, and this one, this will go down in the annals. This is a big one, and the animated piece just puts it over the top. <laughs> Thanks. I'll pass it on. Yeah, I hope it starts a trend. I hope that picks up some steam. I'd love to see some Mitch Rap covers, some Brad Thor covers, you know, animated like that. You might you yeah. might have started something. <laughs> and the folks at Forge, is that right? Who you're publishing? Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah, Tor Forge. All right. Shout out to them. Absolutely crushing it with this. Well, we are going to switch over to some spoilers. Go ahead, pick up your copy if you haven't yet. Assassin's Dawn, the novella, and Assassin's Edge, the ninth book in the Assassin series. Last call, spoiler warning, hit pause, save the podcast till after you have read 
the books. I've got to start with Trident. Whoa, huge reveal at the ending. Kind of a cliffhanger. We've got some Chinese operators in the shadows pulling strings. Is this where we're headed next? Yeah, and you know, it's the first time. Yeah, it's the first time I've done this where I've actually done almost a two book, you know, sequel. In fact, I could even stretch it to three. I'm writing the next one right now, so I'm kind of right in the middle of it. But yeah, it uh, it's, this is going to be at least a two book story that kind of continues on. So yeah, they're they're going to get theirs. <laughs> you know, we noticed the Mitch Rap books. Now that we covered the series, the ones that really were a cut above tended to have the two-part arc believe it or not memorial day and consent to kill came one after the other i mean for being two of the best thrillers ever written they were back to back one and then the other and i i didn't realize that at first and then a couple of vince's villains who really stand out like hank clark and some of the senators operating the shadows they had two or three book arcs so i think that's pretty smart that this group trident is going to be sticking around yeah, yeah, it's one thing to have a you know some constant characters that recur, but yeah, having a, a villain that carries between a couple books, I haven't done that before really. So yeah, it's it's something new for me, and uh, so far I'm liking it. Yeah, you learn that the bad guys this whole book, as bad as they are, are pawns or cogs in a bigger machine that keeps you wanting. It keeps you coming. Right. We also talked about the false flag operation before. You have the U.S. and Russia being set up to almost go to war. Essentially, the whole operation being established is to make it look like the U.S. fired this missile and sunk a Russian carrier a little too close to home again. <laughs> you know, I wrote that over over a year ago, and here we are. You know, and, I, and also at the very beginning, the first uh, you know the U.S. ship that sank in the Black Sea that was right off Crimea. So yeah, we're right in the neighborhood again. So um, yeah, was, uh, <laughs> the, the carrier was funny. You know, that was at the very end. That Admiral Kuznetsov is just uh, it's sort of a punchline for for me. <laughs> and I I kind of took some digs to it, and I think I'm sure you read. I took some digs at it because it's just got a terrible history. I mean, it has, to, it has to actually be followed around wherever it goes by an ocean-going tug because they true? know it's going to break down. That's true. I was really hoping some of your little digs <laughs> at the Kuznetsov were true because you tear that ship a new one. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. You know, it's just a prestige thing. They want to have a carrier just to be able to say so. Right. And and they also did actually sell her two sister ships. They sold the hulls, unfinished hulls, to China. And China, uh, I think I said in the book, they, they turned one into their first carrier. Can't think of the name right now. And the other one was, for a time, turned into a floating casino. And then they actually decided they wanted a second carrier as well. So that's being retrofitted to, uh, to become wow. a second carrier. So you have fun with this research, it seems. You yeah, it is it. fun, yeah. And I think the readers like that, too. <laughs> like a few jibes here and there. And that, you know, you got to have a sense of humor with it all. Oh, absolutely, yeah. The description of, of the Russian ship and how it's been just piecemeal kind of patched up along the way, I thought was brilliant. A brilliant, kind of lighthearted touch there when it got really heavy towards the end. Yeah. And also, I mentioned it earlier, going to Wrangell Island was really cool. And when we opened with a plane, I was like, oh, here we go. Ward's at it again. But very quickly, yeah. that plane disintegrates. And now it's a submarine and a scuba diving mission to recover the remains in the Arctic. Do you have right. scuba experience? Because you were really detailed in the tools and the navigation and what it's like to be underwater, basically, in the Arctic. Yeah, I, I do. I'm a diver. I'm a yeah, I'm an advanced diver, and uh, I've been doing it for quite a while. I'm not an expert. I would say I'm an expert though, and I'm not an expert on cold water diving. I'm a warm water diver all the way. So I had to research, you know, the dry shoots and that kind of thing. And again, Brian helped me a little. Brian Andrews with uh, you know diving out of a sub because that's not something I'm really familiar with. But yeah, and and, and you know a lot of this is just stuff I got to thinking about. You know, as I was writing, is oh wait, you can't do that. You know, a, cusp, a compass isn't going to work up there because you know, you're going to have you know the, the magnetic variation is excessive and it's kind right. of you can't have GPS. You know, underwater. 
And, you know, when you run out of air, normally as a diver up there, or normally as a diver, as you run out of air, get low, you just go to the surface and look for the boat. Can't do that in the Arctic. It's solid ice. You run out of air, you're dead. So there's a lot of complications up there. And I think it, it creates a pretty, pretty, uh, you know, severe scene. So, uh, yeah. And, and I have a few um, regular readers who are real big divers and they're really looking forward to this. I told them there's a lot of diving in it. So, so yeah. Yeah, they've got a lot to look forward to. Uh, that might might have been my favorite part of the book is the recovery of the plane on Wrangell Island under the water. It's perhaps the most gripping moment because David gets split. He's down there on his own. Yeah. You got to kind of MacGyver and figure out your way to survive. And when there's a will, there's a way. Yeah. Yeah. And diving. I mean, I have been diving, you know, at night and night is kind of spooky when you're diving because, you know, you, you have no sense of up or down. If you lose your lights, I mean, you are just in a void. And if you're, you're, you're neutrally buoyant, if you have your buoyancy set up right, it's just like being in outer space without the stars. You just can't tell up from down. The only thing that gives you any reference is your bubbles, really. And, you know, trying to navigate when you don't have any light, just total pitch black like that. I and mean, it's, it's just a lot to think about. And it's, you know, you really got to keep your wits about you. You know, the outer space reference, that scene is basically gravity underwater. Yeah. Yeah. So another thing about Wrangell Island, when you did your research on that, did you read In the Kingdom of Ice? A recommendation for you and the listeners here. No, I did not. It's And I'm a junkie for this stuff. It's one of those historical adventure stories of a missing ship in the Arctic. The USS Jeanette in 1880 went through the Bering Sea and was looking for a northern landmass, thinking you can cross the North Pole in the Arctic, you know, Mm -hmm. and get to the other hemisphere by by going across a landmass at the North Pole. Obviously not true. Uh, They were shipwrecked and had to survive on Wrangell Island. And I don't know if it's because I read that book, but the picture I got through your writing was exactly as it was detailed these this group of sailors surviving on the island back 140 years ago what's your research like on geographic locations are you google mapsing it a lot of photo i mean photos you know you can find photos in any place like that and that just gives you the picture you know that actually going there because i didn't go to wrangle island but (laughs) it's of course but yeah i mean just you know seeing it and uh get as get as many um you know views as you can from different angles different times of day times of season that kind of thing and uh yeah i just got to feel for it that way and you know to your to your reference of the uh the old whaling boat that got stranded there i even had that remember the old rowboat i, I had him find an old beat-up rowboat <laughs> on the island that's it trapped in the ice yeah because that's what it was a whaling thing back then and Correct. it was you know expo- explorers and whalers that's all it had been there until you know 100 years ago right and they just found it was not in the Arctic. I believe it was the Antarctic. They just found which ship was that? Uh, that was yeah. pretty cool news. So I love that you threw in that tidbit. Yeah. Are right, the big one though? The big spoiler here is you throw out basically three weapons. Yeah. That who knows could be the wave of the future. Some of them you said in the book wrote that they were kind of shelved projects that there was some R and D on. They were in the development yeah. stages, the radar jamming, the GPS meekening. Really curious about that. And they were kind of shelved. And then someone took them off the archives and said, wait, let's let's build this out. Tell us about the, the radar jammers, the GPS meekening devices to throw off GPS. Where'd that come from? Yeah, yeah. we in the in U.S. spend a lot of money you know, developing weapons. They don't all work out. DARPA has a lot of things they try and a lot of times, you know, they learn something from it, but then, well, we need to tweak this and that. So they kind of put this model aside and work on the next model. So, yeah, we have a lot of, you know, fancy weapons that are shelves that are shelves that never quite you know, make it to make it to the front lines or go into production. Um, in the book, you know, right off the bat, I had the directed energy weapon. I didn't get too, you know, too technical into exactly what kind, but that's what directed energy weapons do. They Pulse laser, it just kind of creates uh, uh, conditions of heat. And, you know, you, I got into the little bit when I did my research of the weapons effects that directed energy weapons have. And uh, that's kind of what it would do to an airplane. Certain things in the airplane, certain avionics are hardened where, you know, the electromagnetic pulse, like a nuclear blast is not going to set them off. But you know, there's, there's different wavelengths and they have different effects on materials and on aircraft and on 
uh, munitions. So, uh, yeah, I, I got into that, did some research. But, yeah, you can take down an airplane with a directed energy weapon. In fact, I, 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 I thought this a few years ago. I remember at the end of the, I think it was the end of the Obama administration, there was a period when North Korea was launching these ICBMs or trying to, and they just had failure after failure after failure. And I couldn't help but think, I wonder if there's a reason for that. Yep. Yep. <laughs> I don't, I never, you know, I, there's no answer to it. If there is, it's classified. But, uh, I, I always suspected maybe we had a hand in that. I did the direct energy weapon uh, in that first attack. Yeah, the other one, the GPS meekening, that was sort of a, a hybrid attack, but basically it was a, a hack slash attack, or a, hash, a, a hack slash, uh, you know, electronic attack to, to take over the navigation of a ship. And I, you know, I didn't, I did some research on it. I didn't have any real, you know, intelligence on this, anything secret, but I, I know you talked about a GPS meekening. That is a thing. You can do that. And basically you send out a signal that overrides because, you know, the signal for GPS has come from outer space. It's pretty far away. If you're much closer, you can use a much smaller signal to override that GPS and put in a false signal, one that will slowly walk off the actual information to give you, you know, a bad position. And, you know, it's expensive to do and you need a reason to do it, but militaries can do that. They, and I did it back in the Cold War days in the 70s and 80s. I used to do it with just VHF uh, navigation aids. Russians would set them up all along the border between east and west. And they would they would trick the uh, the navigations and the F fours and whatever it was to try to get them to fly across the border into into enemy airspace. So it's you know the concept has been around a while. It's just the technology is new. And there's so many applications for that. These devices you can only imagine navigation in a plane and a ship. They're really heavily relying on these tools. You're not really questioning if the tool isn't calibrated or if the tool is hacked. You're kind of full steam ahead, right? Imagine as a player. Very much so, yeah. You trust it after a while because it's so accurate and so reliable and, you know, it's backed up two, three times. But, you know, if somebody's messing with it, there's probably a way that uh, it can be tricked. Right. And then you had the ships also. It was kind of like a giant game of Battleship, but in the Mediterranean and the Red Sea. Yeah, yeah. It made me think of the importance of these straits. Like one ship comes through Gibraltar, you've got one crossing the Suez a bunch. Mm-hmm. And now with you know China, if we look at the Strait of Malacca and connecting the Indian and Pacific Oceans, I feel like these are these choke points that are ripe for these stories. Look at what the Ever Givens when it was stuck in the Suez, how it jammed up international commerce. Yeah. And put that together with the meekening, and you have a recipe for catastrophe really absolutely that's a good idea for a thriller <laughs> <laughs> yeah I was, i'm wondering who's gonna tackle the strait because i was reading about the south china sea and honestly so much commerce goes through this one couple mile stretch of water yeah it's such an important hub to control and then what happens if that comes unraveled what if a, a strong man or, a, or someone with bad intentions does stronghold these choke points what does that mean are we all held hostage yeah, right now Turkey holds the Bosphorus Straits, and, the Bosphorus and I talked right. a little about about the treaty for that. You know, in the book, I had a couple of paragraphs about the treaty for that, and that's you know that's Russia's lifeline because they that's their only warm water port. The warm water, right? Exactly. Like a theme we found on the podcast, these thrillers are not just beach reads. They're not basically romance novels for military espionage junkies. You learn a lot. You consider. You war game. You really think the implications of technology. And warfare, they're not just that you turn off your brain and escape to a story. And and I think yours, your books absolutely prove that. Yeah. And when things happen like is happening in Ukraine right now, I think you get a you by reading books like that, you'll have a much better sense. See, so, yeah, things will start to to make sense and like, oh yeah, I see why it's why it's happening that way. Yep. And uh, yeah, you get a better understanding for for military campaigns like that. Less weapon you you make the hypersonic missile. These are a real thing. I'm I'm not mistaken. They are. They are a real thing. Yeah. Now yours went up to space. Is that how they typically work? They go to space. Not space. Not quite. Um, There's there's different ones. There's there's two kinds. There's the one like I had in my book, which is a hypersonic missile, and then there's also hypersonic glide vehicles, which I think are a little different. Um, We kind of got behind on that. We did some hypersonic research back in the '90s, and it's it's always been known you could do it. 
but it's there's a lot of technical hurdles in terms of materials and propulsion things like that and then a few years back both the chinese and the russians tested a hypersonic missile and that kind of really got our attention and i think you know you probably read in the news in ukraine russia used a hypersonic missile which sounds really impressive but really there was no it wasn't a very good use of that missile it was more just showing off to show that they had one right because you know they they struck in our you know our, i think it was an ammo dump or something yeah did some damage and took out an ammo dump but you didn't need a hypersonic missile it. to do that you're, you're, you you know, you're you you don't need that kind of weapon it's it's a waste and they don't certainly don't have that many um but you know we we have them now and uh yeah basically they you know you, you can launch them from airplanes you can launch them from ships you can launch them from shore but the big deal and the reason we're so worried about them is because we have a navy that's designed around 11 or 12 whatever it is carrier battle groups and that is definitely a hypersonic missile is a huge threat to an aircraft carrier because there is no defense against it right now. They, they go so fast that the existing defenses, as I had in the book where they tried to shoot sparrows at it, you know, the sparrows just mm-hmm. chased it and ran out of gas and there was nothing they could do. Yeah. It, it's just not designed to do that. So it, you're kind of defenseless. So we're really working on both getting our own hypersonic missiles right now and finding defenses for them, which really the defense for that is probably, if anything, uh, some kind of directed energy weapon that goes at the speed of light because you know trying to intercept something that goes that fast or something else that goes that fast it's a it's a really hard mathematical problem you know what that made me think about the hypersonic missile i'm thinking when in the newest star wars movie which was a complete disappointment but when admiral holdo she goes light speed kamikaze through a star destroyer she takes her ship at into hyperspace <laughs> through a star destroyer like that was brilliant and now i'm thinking this hypersonic missile going through this russian aircraft carrier and most hypersonic missiles don't even have warheads because they're just going they're just a dense piece of metal in the nose and they're just going so fast right. they hit something and it becomes a plasma and just everything is becomes a weapon from that point right. since you brought star wars i'm trying to figure out you know, they've got directed energy weapons in Star Wars. They've got the the stormtroopers carrying around whatever kind of weapons that is. How can they have such an advanced weapon, a handheld direct energy weapon, and they have no sighting device? For they can't hit they anything. Can't, they can't hit a darn thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Our last podcast was episode one of Scott Harvath, and we covered Lions of Lucerne. I put in the notes for Chris, I said, there's a lot of stormtrooper syndrome going on here. And we got on the pod. He was confused. He's like, I see in the notes, stormtrooper syndrome. I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm like, how many shootouts were there where not a bullet finds their target? You know, ooh, whiz went past my head or ooh, some rock chipped off over and over. I'm like, these guys just can't shoot. <laughs> I guess that's a trope. You got to keep your hero alive. You got to. Last thing from Assassin's Edge that really left me wanting and thinking. And really the reason I'm going to come pick up the next one anton block i have loved love this character i'm a sucker for these old-timey spies the mentors thomas stansfield reed carlton uh, dare i say it stan hurley anton really takes a gut punch here he does he does yeah and i you know and that's i think how it is you know i I think he can't live a life that long in that kind of position without taking some real gut punches and so yeah i mean you know it's maybe a little out of the blue but i you know yeah i did it that way and uh, i think it's it probably fit the scenario can he stay in the game like we know slayton after loss comes back and just wants to exact even more revenge Anton Block's getting older. What does revenge look like for him besides unleashing Slayton? I just, you left me chewing on something. Well, to be determined. Yeah, to be determined. He hasn't had a big, big part in the last, you know, Israel comes and goes in these stories because that's, that's, you know, Slayton's origin. But, uh, you know, I don't have the Israeli involvement in every one. So he kind of comes and goes. But yeah, we'll see how it affects him and, you know, maybe I'm sure he'll not be out of the game. I'm sure he'll be back. He always keeps a hand in things. Well, Ward, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for taking the time to be 
a repeat guest on No Limits, the Thriller podcast. Really had a great time talking to you. Great to be here and best to uh, Chris. All right, guys. Hope you enjoyed that author series with Ward Larson. What a great guy, Mike. Yes. So next time we come at you, we're going to be doing term limits. Is that what we decided? No. Terminalist, terminalist, terminalist. Not, not, not term limits. <laughs> Two great first books, though. Debut books by fantastic authors, both term limits and terminalist. I could see the influence <laughs> of one on the other. But yeah, we are going back to the Scott Harvath series in our season two. So right. we'll be covering the next book over there in the Scott Harvath, Brad Thorth series. But we're going to dedicate May to Chris Howdy. Because Storm Rising, oh, okay. the fourth Howdy, book, and right. Haley Chill will be coming out. We'll cover Deep State, the original book, Storm Rising, the new release, coming out May 3rd. And then June, though, is a big month. So to give the folks a little schedule, June is big as we gear up for the release of the Terminalist TV show, which drops on July 1st. July 1st. So in June, we're going to cover the Terminalist and In the Blood, Jack Carr's newest release. That way you can be all caught up. And, you know, know what's going on and get ready for the Terminalist TV series with starring Chris Pratt to drop on Amazon Prime July 1st. So those are our next two months, May and June. Nice. Maybe, maybe we can squeeze in a pod to talk about Insurrection Day. I wanted, I've been wanting to talk to you about that one. So Yes. Hey, May is uh, Chris Howdy month, so we'll see what we can get in there. Yeah, great book. Great book. Right. So be on the lookout for whatever Chris Howdy we do on this feed. And then also make sure you go to the Scott Harveth feed. I know it's a little confusing right now, but eventually once you're subscribed, it'll all be fine. We got Path of the Assassin coming to you part one and part two. I already recorded those. Those are mint. Um, so know you'll like that. All right, we got to thank our patrons, our special operator, Sherry F., our special agents, Daryl, Kevin, George, Matt, Don, Dennis, Peggy, Catherine, Ray, Bridget, Jeff, and Mark. Whew, that list is getting long. I like it. I like it. <laughs> Please subscribe, rate, and review using your favorite podcasting platform. You can find us online at thrillerpod.com or using our Twitter or Instagram handle at Mitrappod. And as always, keep the faith. <laughs>